Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute Book Forum for this book, Left Turn, How Liberal Media Bias Distorts the American Mind, by our guest author this morning, Dr. Timothy Grossclose. Uh, my name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government at the Cato Institute, uh, and I am our host today and moderator for our program. Uh, our schedule basically will be, if you've been to a Cato book event, it will be familiar to you, is I'm going to uh, essentially introduce uh, Dr. Grossclose, give you a sense of the book and the issues. He will then speak for a period and do his presentation. Uh, it will be followed by a commentary by uh, Alex Mooney. And then we're going to turn it over to you, and I think there's a great desire by everyone to hear the questions you might have about this uh, important and controversial book. Uh, so at that point, uh, sometime around one or so today, we will break for lunch, and you will have both a chance to have uh, a lunchtime meal and to purchase a book, uh, a copy of Left Turn, that Dr. Grossclose is more than willing to sign for you and to discuss uh, with you his findings and his work in this area. So to get to the question that is uh, at the heart of our event today, is the media in America, in the United States, is it biased? Is it biased in a political way? Now, probably most of us, uh, say if you're reading the New York Times in the morning, as I frequently do, or watch television, are likely to say to themselves more than once, you know, it's really a biased statement. The media, and I think most people would uh, have little doubt that there's some sort of bias in the media in America today. The problem, however, is this. If you read the people that agree with you, that share your political views, like me, they'll say, well, you know, there's a real liberal media bias there, and they really distort the news in a way that helps the liberal cause. However, if from time to time you notice, as I sometimes do, that there's a bunch of books on the other side, that go back as far as the 1980s that say, you know, the media was really on bended knee to that guy, Ronald Reagan. They did nothing but help Ronald Reagan in these, all these tricks he was playing on the American people, and so on. In other words, there's a bunch of arguments on the other side that say, well, yes, the media is biased, but it's in a profoundly conservative direction, and all these complaints from the right about liberal media bias that's all hokum. So we have this problem that people disagree profoundly about this question, about media bias, and they have strong views and are likely to notice, perhaps, uh, bias from the other side. So we need a way of discerning whether, the, in fact, there is media bias in American politics. And that's where our author today and our book, Left Turn, comes in. Dr. Grossclose is a political scientist and an economist. He has, has worked on this issue for some years, and he is attempting not just to repeat his own prejudices or his own point of view, but rather to develop objective measures that are reliable and valid in a quantitative way for measuring media bias. So that for whatever his views are, or my views, or any of our views about whether media bias exists, He's trying to say, can we show objectively that it does? And that's what Left Turn is about. 
And it, it is also why it is an important book that challenges social scientists and citizens, I think, but not in a way of just repeating my own views or repeating prior beliefs about media bias, but brings new knowledge to bear on this important political issue. Uh, Dr. Uh, Tim Grossclose is the Marvin Hoffenberg Professor of American Politics at UCLA. He has joint appointments in political science and economics there. He has held previous faculty appointments at Caltech, Stanford University, Ohio State University, Harvard University, and Carnegie Mellon University. In 1987, uh, Gross received a BS degree in mathematical and computational sciences from Stanford University, and in 92, his PhD came from the Stanford Graduate School. I should say just, you know, what you get from his education is a fact correct. He is scary good on the method side. Um, his research has focused on Congress, the media, and mathematical models of politics, and he's published more than two dozen scholarly articles, including the American Economic Review, the top journal in that discipline, Quarterly Journal of Economics, American Political Science Review, the top scholarly journal in the political science profession, American Journal of Political Science, and so on. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Timothy Grossclose. Great. I've got the technology. First, I want to thank John for those kind words, and I want to thank Cato for inviting me. I've long been a, a fan of Cato, and I just want to say uh, this is a, a huge honor to be invited here. So um, I'm going to begin. I'm going to talk, I think, something like 30 minutes about my book. The book is uh, divided up into four parts, and the first part Political Quotients and the Science of Politics. It has nothing to do on the media, actually, but it forms the background and the base for the rest of the book, and so it's, it's important. I'll start off on that. This is my good friend Dawson Engler, who is a professor of computer science at Stanford University. This is a very impressive guy. He, his specialty is operating systems. He has written his own operating system twice. He wrote eight peer-reviewed articles when he was a Ph.D. student. When I was a Ph.D. student, I wrote zero. I almost had one. I almost had one. This guy had eight. Um, he succeeds at just about anything he tries. When he was a high schooler, he won second place in the Mr. Teenage, second place in Mr. Teenage Arizona Bodybuilding Contest. So a uh, uh, great guy, uh, impressive guy. One day we're walking along, and he says to me, come on. Political science isn't really a science. <laughs> I think, how do you answer that? And so I said, uh, turns out we were both at MIT. I had a postdoc. He was a grad student. And I was ready for it. I said, uh, you know, look, we can both agree, all engineers, all mathematicians can agree, that if you can graph something, then you can describe it with an equation. He says, yeah, okay, yeah. I said, if, if you can, and all the time, we're talking about people being left-wing or right-wing or centrist. He says, yeah. So that means we can graph people's ideological positions. He says, yeah. And if so, that means we can describe it by an equation, which means it's science. And he kind of smiled. <laughs> he didn't, didn't argue with me anymore. But uh, when, he, when he said this, I was actually working on this very work that's now what I call political quotients. At the time, I called it Adjusted Americans for Democratic Action Scores. 
Um, my publisher and my literary agent said that is too boring and title. You need something better. It's now called Political Quotients. But this is what it is. So if, if you turn your head, left ear down, you could go, these scores go right on top, conservative on top, all the way down to more centrist, and down it goes even farther down to more liberal. So those are what I now call political quotients. And before I, I gave the talk, I gave out some handouts, homework for you guys. This is a 10-question quiz, comes from my book, where you can compute your own political quotient score. Uh, by the way, that's a 10-question quiz. If you want a more precise estimate of, of your score, you can go to my website, timgrossclose.com, and I have a 40-question quiz. Um, those are the questions. Let me discuss uh, a couple technical issues about those, uh, the political quotients before I get to the medium. Uh, first, um, one is, can I compare these across time? And so here's one thing, if you looked at the list of the politicians, there's one thing that's a little controversial on there. Notice that um, John F. Kennedy has about a 64. By the way, these go conservative to liberal, higher numbers are, are more liberal. Meanwhile, Joe Lieberman, who a lot of people, would, especially on the left, would say, this guy's a conservative. But meanwhile, I find John F. Kennedy is more conservative than Joe Lieberman. Okay, by the way, all these questions are based on roll call votes in Congress. So you might ask, and by the way, John F. Kennedy's score was uh, taken from his uh, tenure as, uh, as a member of Congress, both as a House and Senate. So you might ask, like, wait, John F. Kennedy and, and Joe Lieberman didn't even overlap, so how can you compare the two? Well, that's a technical issue, and the same issue is faced by any teacher who wants to have two tests say in the same term, equally difficult. One way to make the two tests equally difficult, by the way, I think of tests as like there's a set of 1947 questions and a, uh, a set of 2009 questions, there's a set of different questions for each year. So you might want to make the two tests, 1947 and the 2009 tests, equally difficult. One way would be to pick questions that are equally difficult. Now that's hard though. If anyone's been a teacher, you know that's very hard to find equally difficult qu uh, questions. Another way to do it is just curve the test. So you look to see, you know, say some students had taken the same test. You look of those students who taken the same test, which test had higher scores? And from that, you might subtract a number from the high score test or add a number to the low score test and you can curve the test. So that's what I've done. When Dawson Engler made that quip to me, I was working on this research with two, I'd say, genius uh, co-authors. Um, one is Jim Snyder, uh, now a professor of uh, economics and political science at Harvard, and uh, the other, Steve Levitt, who is a grad student at MIT. Who, by the way, has heard of Steve Levitt, by the way? Lots have. Uh, some more hands are going to go up in a second. He's the author of Freakonomics. And, uh, but at the time, you know, now he's famous. At the time, he was this no-name grad student. But I, to pat myself on the back, I saw the talent in this guy. Within a few months of meeting him, um, and I have this on record, uh, I can verify this. I said, Steve's going to win a Nobel Prize someday. And uh, I verified with, with Steve, even his parents weren't predicting that in 1994 when I met him. So I'm, I have the distinction of being the, the first person to predict Steve Levitt's going to win a Nobel Prize. And I'm sure I'm going to be right. So what we did... And this is, is this pointer? Oh, great. So if you look uh, on that bottom row, these are just our curving ways, ways of curving the scores from different years to other years. So uh, here's an example. So to get the, uh, the 1947 score, you just multiply that by 1.1, subtract 10.2 from it, and then that gives you 
the equivalent to on the 2009 scale. So that's the technical issue. Why we're very aware of this potential problem of making comparisons across time, and that was the whole point of this article that uh, was published in the American Political Science Review. Um, okay, that was one technical issue. Another is how do, why do I get to choose the questions? By the way, so you have a set of 10 questions that were congressional roll call votes from 2009. Uh, also, why do I get to choose what means liberal? By the way, in your homework, A is always the liberal answer, B is the moderate answer, C is always the conservative answer. Uh, my answer to these questions is that I punt. I don't, I don't decide at all. Instead, I let the Americans for Democratic Action do that for me which is a liberal group uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, they've been around since 1947. Every year they pick about 20 roll call votes in the House and the Senate. They decide whether the yay or nay is the liberal side. And they also decide which of the 20 are most important to the liberal cause. And so they are picking these questions. And so it's basically their scores with this technical adjustment with this work that I've done with uh, Levitt and Snyder. Um, Let's see, two final points about uh, PQ is one, you can compare your PQ not just to politicians, but also uh, to geographic regions. So I have an estimate, we can talk about more of this in the Q&A if you like. Uh, I've estimated the average PQ of different regions of the U.S. So here's how the states go. As you might guess, Utah is the most conservative state. According to my estimates, the average PQ in Utah is about six. Uh, I didn't list all of them. Uh, Vermont, not counting D.C., if we don't count D.C. as a state, Vermont's the most liberal state. The PQ was, I can't remember, something like an 85. Uh, meanwhile, the purple states, as you might guess, are near 50. Uh, by the way, by my estimate, the average PQ of the average American voter is 50.4, which is about the average PQ of the Iowa voter. So um, I do this with counties uh, and so on. Um, uh, okay, two final points about, I get this from my, uh, you know, I teach in political science, which is pretty darn left-wing. I have lots of left-wing colleagues, and one of the most controversial points I have is that Joe Lieberman has a 74 PQ, so that's about 24 points to the left of center by the scale, and, and I get lots of colleagues who say, no, no, Joe Lieberman's conservative. And I say, well, no, not by PQ scores. And I have a whole chapter in my book explaining some of his issues. Yes, on foreign policy issues, maybe he's conservative, but basically all the other issues, except maybe capital gains, he, he is voting with the Democrats. So I'd argue he is a liberal. Meanwhile, some of my uh, conservative friends I'll tell me, oh, uh, Lindsey Graham, no, he's not a conservative. He, he's a rhino. And I said, no, uh, according to my PQ scores, uh, Lindsey Graham, he's uh, 15. M maybe his rhetoric is more liberal than his voting record, but at least his voting record is, is pretty, pretty conservative. I mean, it's not a zero like Jim DeMint or Michelle Bachman. It's not a 10 like John Boehner or, or Mitch McConnell, but it's 15. It's, it's pretty close. Um, okay, so here's some centrist politicians. So I say 50.4. That's how I define centrist. That's my estimate of the average PQ of all America. That happens to be about the PQ of Arlen Specter when he was a Republican. Okay, now he switched to Democrat. But this I looked at all his roll call votes when he was a Republican. 50.6 is his score. Some conservatives call him a, a rhino, Republican in name only. I find that's not quite true, but he was just barely a Republican. Tom Campbell, uh, now a dean at, at uh, uh, Chapman University Law School uh, near, near me in, in, in Southern California. 
Uh, ben Nelson, you might remember the Cornhusker kickback. Um, but basically about any politician, Republican from the Northeast or uh, kind of a, a Democrat from a very conservative area is going to be very close to 50 on this scale. And then finally, if you, you might remember uh, the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, Tom Hanks played Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson was uh, pretty, pretty centrist uh, by my PQ scores. Okay, that's part one. Okay, so now on to uh, talk of some media. Part two in my book is a, what I call the distortion theory of media bias. And this is as opposed to a lying theory of, of media bias. And the idea is that I did, it took me eight years to write this book. I have done lots and lots of reading of LexisNexis, newspapers, transcripts. Very rarely can I find anything that strikes me even as a hint of a false statement. Instead, I argue in the book that, by and large, all of the bias comes from stuff that journalists don't report to us. So it's the true facts that they're leaving out, not the false statements that they might report. Um, to do this, uh, I have six chapters. Uh, one is a case study of this article in the LA Times. I teach at UCLA. Uh, for a time, I was an insider on admissions. I was on the faculty oversight committee for undergraduate admissions, and one day, literally on my driveway, pick up the LA Times, read this article on the front page about it was implying that UCLA was um, racist toward uh, African-American students or at least putting up challenges in front of them, extra obstacles for them to get in. Meanwhile, I'm on these meetings knowing that the opposite is happening. We're bending over backwards trying to help them. In fact, we're maybe at least moving up to the edge of Prop 209, maybe even crossing it, maybe even violating the law, which says you can't give uh, any affirmative action to, to because of race. So uh, meanwhile, I was just... Uh, angry at this article, and then it hit me like, why am I so angry? And I looked through it to find false statements, couldn't find a one, and instead I just thought, well, here are the 10 or 12 facts that should have been reported that that journalist left out. And in, in my chapter six, I lift, list those 10 or 12 facts. Um, another chapter, I argue that it's not just the facts within a subject, but it's also the subjects that journalists pick. And there's some conservative subjects, subjects that conservatives would want you to know that often um, uh, journalists are not reporting. As things like the Van Jones case, you remember uh, President Obama's green job czar, who's a self-avowed communist. Once this was discovered by Glenn Beck and talk radio, eventually uh, members of Congress started calling for him to resign. Um, during the week before he actually did resign, there were several of these calls, and yet there's almost no articles in the mainstream press. Uh, New York Times had nothing on this. And then finally in Chapter 8, I just do a case study uh, where I, I follow a, a journalist, a conservative journalist, and look for a story that I call a conservative story, one that conservatives would want to know, and try to peer inside her head that what led her to do that story and did her conservative views contribute to that. And I try to argue that, yeah, to do these stories, to, to report a conservative topic, you almost need to be a conservative. And to do a liberal topic, you almost need to be a liberal. And so if you look at, you want to have a balance of subjects, you almost need to have a balance of ideological views within the newsroom. Um, okay, so this chapter A, um, this is an analysis of Catherine Kirsten, uh, who uh, got her job through a special experiment at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Let's see if I can read this. 
<coughs> as I write. Uh, this is quoting from my book. Uh, when the tinny tinkle of joy to the world, the Lord has come, begins playing on the cell phone, everyone in range in the Star Tribune newsroom knows who's getting a call. It's Catherine Kirsten, the paper's unapologetically religious and fiercely conservative metro columnist. Since May 2005, the Star Tribune has been engaged in what its top editor describes as an experiment. The experiment has Kirsten, a 55-year-old former banker and think tank denizen, now an opinion writer, playing the role of an alien element injected into a tradition-bound newspaper culture. So what I do is I find that uh, the chapter examines one of the stories she reported. You might remember the flying imams story where there were uh, these imams that uh, got onto a flight from uh, Phoenix, excuse me, from uh, Minneapolis to Phoenix, and they started acting in lots of ways like the September 11th uh, terrorists. They didn't sit in their assigned seats. Instead, they sat in a pattern like the terrorists. Uh, some of them asked for seatbelt extenders but didn't need the seat. None of them were fat enough to need the seatbelt extenders, and they didn't use them either. And so eventually some of the passengers reported these people to the, the airline um, stewardesses, and then eventually they were escorted off the plane. U.S. Airways did not put them on a different fly, flight, and they sued the airline, U.S. Airways, and they sued the airport. Now, uh, what was not reported by the mainstream press is that they also sued some of the passengers. I'll give you uh, some of the uh, details of that in a second. Um, and I, I want to argue in Chapter 6 that Catherine Kirsten got the scoop about the suing the passengers, and I, and I argue that this wouldn't have happened, that that story wouldn't have existed if Catherine Kirsten didn't exist, nor would it have existed if Catherine Kirsten didn't have conservative views. Okay, so here's what I write. Uh, before Kirsten wrote the Flying Imam story, several journalists had reported aspects of it. What they failed to note, however, was that the target was that the lawsuit targeted not just the airline but unnamed John Doe passengers on the flight. Many of the stories, said Kirsten, did little more than just copy facts from the press release of the of the CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. With that story, said Kirsten, the typical reporter would investigate a little and say, nope, nothing more there. But I did some, some research on those guys, and there was one, Omar Shaheen, who, who had a very checkered background. When I researched him, it took so much time. I worked so many hours. Yeah, my conservative perspective definitely con contributed. If you're not interested, if you don't see a story, you won't do it. To do these sort of things, you have to have a sort of antenna up that there may be something fishy about these guys. Most reporters didn't have that antenna. And so finally, I just uh, want to say the um, uh, powerlineblog.com has been extremely kind to me, and uh, they are actually, some of them are friends with Catherine Kirsten. They've put this entire, if you don't want to buy the book but want to read about Catherine Kirsten, I encourage you just go to powerlineblog.com. They have published the, that entire chapter, uh, and I think it's a remarkable story, maybe uh, definitely the most interesting chapter in, in my book, I think. Okay, that was part two, distortion theory of media bias. Now I want to get to evidence of, of media bias. Um, here is what I believe is the most important fact to know if you want to understand media bias. This is that if you poll Washington correspondents and ask them who'd you vote for in the last election, typically what you're going to get is a response of 93 to 7. 93% voted for the Democrat. <laughs> Now, I want to argue in my book that lots, kind of everyone knows that, yeah, if you look to a kind of mainstream journalist, a lot of the 
a big fraction is liberal. A big fraction votes for the Democrat. But I would also argue if you would also call a big fraction something like 70-30 and 80-20. And in this chapter, I want to argue that that 93-7 is qualitatively bigger than 80-20 or 70-30. I think 70-30 would not be such a problem. But 93-7, I I think, does lead to, to many problems with the media. Here's one way of illustrating how big that 93-7 is. In Berkeley, California, or at least the congressional district that contains Berkeley, California, those voters only voted 90 to 10 for Obama. So by this, Washington correspondents are slightly more liberal, slightly more inclined to vote for the Democrat than even Berkeley, California. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, that congressional district voted 86-14. So Cambridge, Massachusetts has approximately double the number of Republican voters than a typical Washington National main, uh, Mainstream Newsroom does. Here's another illustration of just how big 93.7 is. And this was mainly written for my liberal colleagues in political science. I wanted to say, what would the, the anti-newsroom like? What would the mirror image of a newsroom look like? And so I tried to find a county in the United States that voted about 93.7 for the Republican. Turns out there is no such county, unless you count King County, Texas, which only has 200 people. So if you at least want a county with at least 100,000 people, and turns out I wanted to do a case study and drive there, and it was within a day's drive or so of Los Angeles, there's only one county that comes close, and this is Washington County, Utah. It's in the southwest corner of the state. St. George is the county seat. Uh, if any of you are hikers, this is great hiking country. If any of you have kids between 10 and 17, you may have seen High School Musical 2. It was filmed there. You saw the scenery. If, uh, that, that's Washington County. So I went there. So it voted that. Now, meanwhile, Newsroom votes 93-7 for the Democrat. This county, it's very conservative, voted only 77-23 uh, for McCain in the last election. So... I drove to this county. I'm doing a case study. And the first thing I wanted to do was try to find the most conservative person in the county. So first, let me explain something. This was the, the St. George was founded when Brigham Young sent about 300 families down the southwest corner. This was in 1858. He said, it looks like we're no longer going to be able to get cotton from southeast United States. Let's have, we need a source of cotton close to, closer to Salt Lake City. So he sent some cotton growers, lots of them were former southeast uh, United States residents, and they named everything Dixie. So in this in this county, everything's named Dixie, including I went to, I found this store. It's called Dixie Gun and Fish, and this is the owner, Tom Siegmiller. So I interviewed him. This is in my quest to find the most conservative person um, in Washington County. Now he's probably not the most conservative person, but he's pretty close, and he's very conservative, as you might guess. Um, the, and I came to really admire him, I have to say. And uh, the, the best three-word exp- uh, phrase I can think of to describe him is American exceptionalism personified. And, and here's what I mean by that. First, American exceptionalism this is coined by Alexis de Tocqueville uh, in his book, Democracy in America. It, pos- it posits that Americans are qualitatively different from other economically advanced countries in a number of ways. Uh, for one, um, uh, we Americans go to church more. Uh, we tend to have more kids. We tend to have more friendly views toward capitalism. We're more entrepreneurial, um, and we own more guns. 
Tom Siegmuller is a devout Mormon, has eight kids, um, owns two businesses, and one of them is a gun store, this Dixie Gun and Fish. There, he's in a, this is a picture of him in his other store. This is an athletic supply store. You probably can't see it, but the top picture right above the deer horns is a picture of Jesus. Right below the deer horns is a picture of George Washington. Uh, just below that, there's a plaque given to him by one of his eight kids proclaiming him world's greatest dad. So uh, I'm gonna say, so my own PQ is about a 13. I'm sure Sig Miller's is about a zero. Uh, so we largely agree on everything, including guns, but still I wanted to see if I could get a rise out of him. So I asked him one day, it's like a, what a typical Los Angeles resident might, might say to him as a gun store owner. I said, isn't a gun more likely to kill a family member uh, accidentally than to kill an intruder? Aren't you better off just using alarms and police, protect, police for protection? And then uh, I did get a rise out of him, Tom Siegmuller says. Now, that's an absolute fallacy. In fact, that's almost a Hillary Clinton-like cliche. The people who say things like that have no knowledge about guns. It's as if you take someone with a kindergartner's knowledge, but for some reason you give him a podium. Okay, so that's a flavor of Tom Siegmuller's views. Another person I interviewed was in my quest to find the most liberal person in the county. Now, it turns out there's a strange gerrymander for this congressional district in, in Utah. Um, it turns out that because of this strange gerrymander, Washington County is actually represented by a Democrat. His name's Jim Matheson. And they have one office for Jim Matheson in Washington County, and it's run by Mike Empey. And so uh, I interviewed him, and uh, here's a typical quote from, from Empey. He says, my job is to show up at community and political functions and maintain a presence for Jim Matheson in Washington County. I try to convince people that we are not like the National Democratic Party. We're not extreme environmentalists. We're not rabid George Bush haters. And I try to explain to people that you can be a Mormon and still be a Democrat. So the, the main points of the chapter 11, the anti-newsroom, is that in the mirror image of newsroom, the conservatives would outnumber liberals 93 to 7. I'd argue this would look very foreign to us in our current world. Views like Tom Siegmuller's would be considered approximately mainstream. He would maybe not be in the center, but I would say close to the mainstream. And views like Empey's would be on the left. People would consider him kind of as an oddball in the, in the newsroom. Okay, now, so, so far I've just talked about views of journalists. Now, I want to get to other evidence, more important evidence, which is that the actual content of, their, of the, what reporters report is also biased. And this all began with a peer-reviewed article that I wrote with Jeff Milo. Um, uh, he's the less good-looking guy in that, that picture. Um, uh, uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's the best man at my wedding, and uh, we've been very good friends. And he's a uh, fellow at uh, Cato. I'm forgetting about that, yes. Um, uh, so this was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. That article is 48 pages long, um, I'd argue, don't read that. You get the whole gist of that paper in one page, and this is all from figure two. And this explains what I now call slant quotients. So I talked about political quotients a while back. Uh, here's what I mean by slant quotients. And here, uh, first, I'll uh, illustrate it with an example. If you can look, the third one, it's probably hard to see, that's the New York Times, so about the third most liberal in this group. Um, follow the arrow down, follow across, and you see that the New York Times has a slant quotient of about 74. Meanwhile, you may recall that I told you uh, Joe Lieberman, 
uh, has a political quotient of about 74. So the New York Times slant quotient equals Joe Lieberman's political quotient. What that means is that by our statistical method, the New York Times average article sounds about as liberal as the average Joe Lieberman speech. Okay, so that's how we get 74 as the slant quotient for the New York Times. Now, more specific, what that means, our basic data that we used was citations to think tanks. So that 74 SQ means that the New York Times, when it picked of left-wing, right-wing, centrist think tanks, that it picked a mix that was approximately the same mix that Joe Lieberman picks when he makes speeches on the floor. Okay, and so that's how we uh, can estimate that 74 for the New York Times. And as you can see, we estimated uh, lots of different numbers. These are 20 uh, kind of the biggest news outlets that we uh, that we picked. And you may notice a 50. Remember, was centrist. That's the average PQ. Um, 18 of the 20 news outlets that we examined were left of center by, by this measure. The only two that were right of center that we examined were Fox News Special Report and the Washington Times. Now, one thing that was pretty controversial um, was that the Special Report was about a 40 SQ. Meanwhile, the kind of the network news shows, ABC, NBC, CBS, we're all somewhere in the low 60s. CBS was actually 73, something like that. So because 40 is closer to 50 than 63 is to 50, so our estimate said that Special Report but with Brit Hume is actually more centrist than those mainstream news outlets and those network news shows. So uh, that was uh, fairly controversial with some of our fellow social scientists, uh, especially political scientists who, who vote about like a newsroom, by the way, about 93 to 7. Um, okay, so it turns out in my book I described some other methods. There's been uh, at least two other methods that I think verify, find at least as strong a liberal bias as I found. One was what I now call the loaded phrase method, and this was devised by uh, Matt Genskow and Jesse Shapiro, economists at the University of Chicago. What they did is they, they looked at loaded political phrases, like estate tax versus death tax. Which phrase you use gives away your position on that issue. And they just looked through, they had a computer program, go through all the congressional speeches, went through the congressional record, found all two and three word phrases, all possible two and three word phrases, looked for ones that Republicans use more than Democrats or vice versa, called those their set of loaded political phrases, and then did a technique, something like Milo and I did with the think tank citations. And I've converted their scores to SQs, and I find about the same results. That uh, The mainstream media, I found, was about in the low 60s, maybe mid-60s, and by their method, I found about the same. I have one more method that, that I use. This used uh, facts about the Bush tax cuts. Now, it turns out there are two main facts. There's one that the liberals were reporting, and this was that the rich – would receive a disproportionate share of the tax cuts. There were statements going around like the richest 1% of the country is going to receive 30% of these tax cuts. And that was true, or at least, you know, you could argue maybe it was 25, maybe it was 35, but definitely the richest 1% were getting more than 1% of the tax cuts. So that was a liberal fact, a fact that liberals wanted you to hear that was true. Meanwhile, there's another fact that conservatives wanted you to hear, and this was uh, one example, was that the tax cuts actually made the system more progressive. That is, after 
the tax cuts were implemented, the rich actually paid a higher percentage of the income taxes than before. So this was a, a fact con- equally true that conservatives wanted you to know. And I looked to see, you know, which facts did the media report, and I show evidence that the mainstream media uh, definitely emphasized the fir- first fact lots more than the second fact. In fact, even Fox News, the, the special report with Britt Hume, um, actually reported the first fact slightly more than the second fact. And on this one, by this method, even that special report was slightly left-leaning. So that was very controversial. So the Fox News special report, by this measure, was a left-leaning centrist news outlet. Okay, so here's the the final summary. And I do this big... um, I get this big uh, Gallup survey to ask where people get their news. I use that survey to get a weighted average of all these outlets, and I get that the average slant of the entire U.S. media, at least of the media that the that moderates are getting, this was a the survey asked moderates this question, is about 58.5. So that's my average slant, call it S, of the entire U.S. media. I remember 50.4, I'm calling centrist. Higher numbers are bigger, so I'm finding... All the media, and by the way, that 58.5, that includes talk radio, Fox News, includes the Internet, everything. So you put in everything, I'm finding that um, uh, the, the media does have at least a slight bias. Now, some people would say, by my method, my method would say that, by the way, so I found that that's about an eight-point bias. I find that the average Joe Lieberman speech is about a 24-point bias to the left on the liberal side. So I find that the bias of the entire U.S. media is only about one-third that of the average Joe Lieberman speech. So some people would say, well, that's not very biased. Right. So yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, so, okay, that was evidence of media bias. Finally, uh, part four, uh, the effects of media bias. And here's what I want to do. So here's the same graph. Uh, first, in the book, I review some academic studies that try to test the effect of media bias. And uh, there's three that I think are outstanding and do something like an experiment to find the bias of, of the, the effect of the bias. And one, for instance, was uh, these Yale researchers who called up uh, Northern Virginia voters, uh, Washington, D.C. suburb voters, um, asked them, hey, uh, we're willing to buy you a subscription to the Washington Post or Washington Times. And what they would do before calling them, they'd flip a coin to see what of his heads they would offer the Washington Post, tails they would offer the Washington Times. So they were acting like biologists. They actually had like a control group and a treatment group that was determined randomly. And at the end of this, they gave them subscriptions for about two months. By the way, these researchers paid for those subscriptions. So this was a very expensive study. And they found that, sure enough, the Washington Post subscribers really did vote more liberally than the Washington Times subscribers, about 3.8 percentage points. Maybe that's not so big, but they found a definite effect. And I use studies like this to estimate the effect of the media and find that it really does have an effect, that the media really can influence our, our thoughts and voting behavior. Okay, now, if that's all true, and... If you agree with my results that 50.4 is the average PQ of the average voter, 58.5 is the average slant of the entire U.S. media, and the media can pull our views toward how they're reporting, that means that 50.4 number is artificial. It means that the average voter's views, what we see in the average voter, has been pulled to the liberal side, at least a little bit by the media. 
So what I ask is, what would those natural views be? Where were they pulled from? What would those views be if you could magically get rid of, of the media bias, if you could have the media report like the PQ of the average voter? And I say that that natural views would be something uh, X. It's just something that's more conservative than 50.4. Unfortunately, conservatives on the left on this graph. And so um, I try to answer, what is that X? Now, to do that... I form a small mathematical model. I keep the math out of this book, except for maybe one chapter where I introduce that one equation and do a little algebra. Um, once I find an estimate for this lambda using the academic studies, um, I can do an algebra problem, and I get that, that my estimate of that x is 31.5. Um, then I argue that when I got that 31.5, there were lots of assumptions I made that I think erred on the side of making it higher than it really is, so I suggest maybe 25 or 30 is the, the more likely estimate. So that's my estimate of the natural views of the average voter, what those views would be if you could magically remove media bias or if you could magically remove the effect of that. So then the final point I'll make, I can answer a thought experiment. So what if we could magically uh, get rid of media bias. So remember, currently in our current world, the average America, America thinks and votes about like a purple state, something like Iowa, Nevada, or Colorado. What if we could do this thought experiment, magically get rid of all the media bias, or magically make all of its effects go away, make everyone perfectly rational and discount this media bias? How would America look? And the answer is about like West Virginia, Texas, or North Dakota. We would think our political views would be about like voters in those states. And I will end there. Thank you very much. Did you ever think there would be a time in your life when uh, hearing the word or the number 31.5 would be one of the most shocking things you've ever heard? Definitely is. I mean, fabulous. Um, Our commentator today is Alex Mooney. Alex is uh, executive director of the National Journalism Center. He graduated from Dartmouth College in 1993 with a degree in philosophy. From 93 to 95, Mr. Mooney served as an aide to Western Maryland Congressman Roscoe Barlett. He then worked as a legislative analyst for the House Republican Conference Committee. He left uh, Capitol Hill to work for a pro-family conservative educational organization called the Center for National, or Council for National Policy. Uh, in 1998, at the age of 27, Mr. Mooney was elected the youngest and only Hispanic member of the Maryland State Senate. He, was, he served there from 1999 to 2010. Mr. Mooney's mother, the former Lala Suarez, immigrated to the United States from Cuba in 1961 at the age of 21. One of the reasons Mr. Mooney is so passionate about the importance of freedom of the press and fair and objective media is because of his mother's experience in communist Cuba, where the people have no such freedoms. Uh, this past uh, background, I think, m- makes Mr. Mooney particularly a good commentator for us today on this issue. Alex? Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Cato, for this nice uh, invitation. Um, and I've been pleased for the last seven years to run the National Journalism Center as executive director. I've not been a journalist directly myself until this past year when I started my own radio show, The Alex Mooney Show, on Sunday afternoons out in my local Western Maryland area. 
So I sort of I dabble, dabble in that. I'm a talk show host. And I know uh, Professor Gloskos in his book, if you read it, in one of his chapters he talks about how the more he studied politicians in the first uh, earlier phase of his career, the more he studied politicians, the more he says in his book he grew to respect them. But the more he studied journalists, the more he uh, grew to less, have less respect for them. So now that I'm doing both, I don't know where I fit on that uh, paradigm. I guess up and down. I guess I'm right less, back in, right less. back in the middle. Oh, less. Okay. Um, um, but you mentioned the, the experience from Cuba, and, and I'm, you know, my mother came here in, in 1961 and left left that all behind. Didn't even teach us Spanish growing up back in those days. If you came to this country, you just completely immersed and left behind your culture. And we kind of regret that. I wish I did speak Spanish growing up. It'd be a nice nice talent. But you know, we ra- I was raised in Western Maryland, and you know, basically a conservative area. Uh, my mother, after 27 years, finally started going back to Cuba about eight years ago, every year or two, on a humanitarian or, or uh, religious uh, visa to, to visit uh, relatives, bring medical supplies, things like that. <clears throat> my sister went with her one year. Clinton was president at the time, and my sister was offering very critical comments about uh, Bill Clinton right in front of you know Cuban people, including little kids, and they'd frankly never heard anybody say anything critical of their government before. And these two little girls, they were like five and seven, these big eyes looked up at my sister and said, in, uh, in, your, in your country, in America, if you say things bad about your president, what happens? And she said, nothing. In, in America, it's free. You can go in front of the White House and scream out, you hate the president, whatever you want. It's called free speech. And you can criticize your government. These kids were stunned. They had no idea you could actually talk like that because this is the way they were raised. You know, In Cuba, it's, you can't say that. They'll lock you up. They lock you up, and if you're lucky, you can prove that you're innocent when you're in jail. How do you like that system? I train this to our journalists. When we talk about reporting from the American point of view, from the American constitutional point of view, we have things in our Constitution that are very important, such as being innocent until proven guilty. That, that was put in there for a reason. In some countries, you're guilty until you can prove you're innocent, like Cuba and many other countries, frankly. How do you prove you're innocent? How do you prove a negative? How do you prove you didn't do something? There's a reason that's in there. And so you could languish in jail for a long time in these communist countries. Freedom of the press is, is a very sacred part of our uh, our, our government, our process. You have to defend that. And actually, I see my aunt, Mary Ham over there, Mary Suarez Ham. I didn't see her until I came up here from Cuba also. So, you know, we, we are passionate. Uh, those of us that are immigrants from countries where we've experienced, I, I'm not one, but my mother, from, uh, where they've experienced a political oppression, you really learn to fight at a young age for your, uh, your, your country. And that's what we do at the National Journalism Center. Um, uh, tra- train students in that. Now, I do want to kind of open with a bit of a, a joke about media bias that I always like to, to open with. In, in Northern California, there are two uh, prominent uh, professional football teams, the Oakland Raiders and the San Francisco 49ers. So if you're from Northern California, you like one or the other. Um, which one? Oakland? Both or both. Okay. Well, so as, as this joke goes, there's these two young uh, boys throwing the football in a, in a uh, building lot out back tossing the football back and forth. A reporter just happened to be walking by, and a large, uh, dangerous uh, Rottweiler dog had gotten loose and ran over and started attacking one of the boys and was biting this child. So the other boy uh, was, was stunned, but he went and grabbed a nearby bat, ran over, and whacked that dog on the head as hard as he could. And the dog just kind of dazed a little bit and, and wandered off. And this reporter saw this happening. So this is amazing. This is such a brave young man. So he runs over to this little kid, this 10-year-old boy, and says, this is a fantastic what you just did. You just saved your friend's life from certain death. Uh, I'm going to write an article about this. I'm going to start the headline, Young Oakland Raiders fan heroically saves friend from 
getting eaten to death by a, a, a vicious dog. And the little boy says, I'm actually not an Oakland Raiders fan. So the reporter says, all right, let me, let me start this over then. Young San Francisco 49ers fan uh, puts his own life on the line to save his, his best friend from a horrible dog attack. And the kid says, well, actually, I'm not a San Francisco 49ers fan either. And so the reporter says, you're not San Francisco or Oakland. Well, what are you? I say, I haven't liked the Philadelphia Eagles. And the reporter says, let me start this uh, headline over again. Little snot-nosed brat murders <laughs> beloved family pet. So, <laughs> so you know, that's, that's an extreme example. But, you know, as Professor Glosko said in We Train, it's how you phrase things. It's how you, um, what you report, what you don't report. The media is changing. Uh, we have a great opportunity, as those of us that are libertarian or conservative points of view. Uh, we have, you know, the Internet has just changed a lot. That's growing. Uh, you'd have to have really a crystal ball to know for sure where the future of the media is going to be even in 10, 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, but Internet sites are popping up every day. Uh, people can go to those sources. The Powerline blog was mentioned. You know, back in the old days, if a fake memo about George Bush and his military service came up and the news reported it, there may not have been uh, someone to, to scrutinize that type of a memo and prove that it was a false, fake, made-up memo that the major networks did not check and stood by it for a couple days before they finally had to embarrassingly admit that Powerline Blog and a few other um, investigative individual free Americans just, just exposed it as, as fake. That kind of stuff you could have gotten away with back in the day. So we have Internet coming up everywhere. Cable TV, Fox News has changed things. We were talking a bit about Richard Nixon uh, yesterday and what he had to deal with with the major news stations. None of them were conservative or, or even really that fair. And so you got Fox News today. So at least you got one channel that at least give you a fair and balanced point of view. You didn't used to have that. And cable TV is growing in the local areas more and more. Um, you got talk radio. Now, I have my own little program, but, you know, Rush Limbaugh and other things, talk radio has really taken off. Um, so you, you, we have an opportunity, as, as those who believe in the founding principles of this country, to really make a difference in, in the media, to overcome the biases that are so obvious that Tim Grossclose proves. I mean, even in his example, Professor Grossclose could only come up with a town that was 7723 um, uh, conservative. That's still one out of four people. So you're in a room like this, there's going to be, you know, I counted there's 60 people, so if it was 7723, 15 of you would be liberals, basically, according to the town he went to. But if it was a newsroom, you're talking 937. It'd be, uh, what, four or five people. I mean, it'd be a vast minority. So when you're in a newsroom, basically what you're talking about with 93.7, if you're in New York Times or something like that, you've got just one token conservative is essentially what it is. One token columnist. The person, Professor Gloskos, used an example at that paper, the lady who was a token conservative. It's sort of like an alien that's observed by all the other reporters who are normal in their mind and understand progressivism and what really needs to be reported. And, but we'll give one nod to this one person out of, out, of a, you know, out of seven out of 93, so one out of less than one out of 10, really, would be not liberal. And that includes talk radio. If you took talk radio out of that equation, I think it would be even less conservatives in a newsroom. So um, you, have, uh, you have such extreme bias, they just don't know that there's another perspective, despite the fact that when you look at elections, oftentimes conservatives sweep the country. When you do a poll... Um, most people will call themselves conservative. Uh, but in the newsroom, you don't have that. They flock to that. They want to dominate it. They want to control what you hear. Um, the, uh, we at the National Journalism Center refer to training responsible journalism. And we've debated the verses objective versus responsible. And we chose the term responsible journalism for a reason. 
because you need to report things. While you want to have both sides for the most part, but you need to report things from the points of view of what this country was founded upon, what the experiment of the United States of America means, what the Constitution means, what free markets are. That's responsible journalism, not just telling both sides, but are telling it from the perspective as what this country believes in. Professor Grosskloss's study, it's mathematical, so it's objective. He's just giving objective, clear data. We obviously, of course, believe in accuracy, objectivity, but more than that, responsibility in what you're talking about. I mean, you could have someone with a bizarre idea, you know, say you have a, someone who believes in terrorism, they, you know, believes in blowing up, blowing up things as, a, as to protest government or protest America. Well, you know, what's the fair side to that? I mean, it's just crazy. So responsibly, you just talk about how um, that's, you know, why they're doing it and why they're, maybe they hate our country or whatever their motives are, but you don't have to give that point of view a fair shake because there isn't a fair shake to crazy activity. Um, you know, there's different approaches to the solution to this. Obviously, there's other programs. I see my friends here from the Institute on Political Journalism. They train journalists too. And there's, you know, you can, you can train journalists to go into the mainstream media. That's part of it. There are some newsrooms where the executives, the business side, want to balance their newsroom, and they have a hard time finding reporters and producers who are other than liberals. So if, you know, if what we do and what I think conservatives and libertarians should do is try and encourage folks to go into the mainstream media. It's not, it's not something you just walk away from entirely. Try and balance those newsrooms that, that exist now. And, and some of them you'll see have come more to the – try to give fair uh, reporting to conservative or libertarian points of view. Um, you know, look at, look at, talking about the future of journalism, look at uh, Rupert Murdoch, Fox News. I know there's a lot of talk about what's the future, and print journalism is declining. That's, that's one of the sort of accepted uh, paradigms of the future of journalism is that print, print media is going down. Newspapers are shrinking. There's some truth to that. However, Rupert Murdoch purchased the Wall Street Journal, and I don't think anyone would think, think that Rupert Murdoch doesn't have a good idea of the future of journalism. So he purchased a print newspaper, and he's trying to uh, actually charge for the online uh, access to the online version of his newspaper. That's a whole other debate in journalism. If they go with less papers and more online, are, are people willing to pay for it in this free market? Well, if it's a really good product, the Wall Street Journal is saying our product's worth paying for. So you have to sign up and pay a monthly or yearly fee to access the Wall Street Journal online. Most newspapers at this point, you do not, do not have to pay for their product. And that would be interesting to see as we go along how long that will last. I've noticed some philanthropists on both sides are willing to fund journalism uh, from the left or the right. They're willing to, you know, fund Internet sites, investigative journalism, newspapers, and underwrite it. Now, I, uh, most people I talk to ideally want newspapers to, uh, to, uh, to be a profitable venture, but uh, there's also the, the opportunity for philanthropists to get involved. I think there's a lot of uh, reason for optimism in the future. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan famously said government is not a solution to our problem. Government is the problem. I think young people are seeing that more and more now with uh, the high unemployment, everything Obama has stood for, you know, high unemployment, high debt, which the youth are going to have to be saddled with. I think they're waking up to that, and they want to fight for our country in this values, and they want to get involved in journalism. I know that some big government statists want to abolish the fairness doctrine and literally control uh, what you can hear and what you can't hear. And, again, that's going towards where, you know, the socialist countries control the media, and we don't want that. That's something we should fight with every fiber of our being. And then they say, like Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois is pushing the Fairness Act, at least he had been. He said, well, we should just show both sides. Well, who decides both sides? You, the government? That's a lie. You're not pushing for both sides. You want the government to control what's being said. And, again, a responsible reporter should report that. 
that the government wants to control what you're hearing. That would be a big problem. So I know we want to leave a lot of time for questions and uh, appreciate the time with you. And uh, thank you for, again, for the opportunity to speak. God bless.